The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from the battlefront, discuss the latest diplomatic updates as Poland heads to the polls this weekend, and I interview Welsh Labour politician Mick Antonich about his Ukrainian roots and the surprising links between Wales and Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 13th of October, one year and 231 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from the battlefront. Hi, folks. So, uh, yes, to the front line and uh, back to Avdivka, um, what we were, where we were discussing yesterday. So the head of the Ukrainian president's office, Andrei Yermak, has said Kyiv's forces are holding their ground as Russia continues to attack the town. He said the Russians threw a lot of force in this direction, but Ukrainian army is holding positions. Russian forces have continued to pummel the eastern Ukrainian town of Divka, which is just just north of the city of Donetsk, and they've uh, used ground and air uh, capabilities to attack the town, which is essentially now the f- about the fourth day of quite intense fighting in and around uh, the town. We know as I mentioned yesterday, that Russia is trying to encircle the town, probably not close to doing that yet, but it is gaining ground. I think the Institute for the Study of Warfare said there was about four kilometres square of ground that Russia has managed to recapture in this counter-offensive move. So Vitaly Barabash, the head of Amdivka's military administration, said the town was under constant attack, and he said, and he also mentions air artillery and large numbers of troops. This is a quote from Mr. Barabash, the battles have been going on for four days now, fierce and really non-stop. They are firing from everything they have available. It was a very hot night in Avdivka. There were several airstrikes on the city itself. The attacks do not stop day or night. So this is the first real big effort that Russia has launched in terms of an offensive since its winter offensive flopped and petered out. Avdivka, as I mentioned yesterday, is a very strategically, maybe operationally more significant town in terms of basically it's known as the gateway to the Donbass. So if Russia wants to break out of the Donbass or claim more of the Donbass, it will need to take that town. So as we know, in the last few months, Russia has been more intent on stopping the Ukrainian counteroffensive, but now it seemed seem to have amassed enough troops and enough armour to make this sweeping attempt to encircle the town. So in this, as I said yesterday, there was quite a lot of lost armour. And the latest estimates now is Russia has reportedly lost more than 100 tanks and armoured vehicles as it launches this sort of mechanised assault on Avdivka. So President Volodymyr Zelensky said Ukrainian forces were also holding ground and there was relentless attacks there. So yeah, not a lot really to report 
fresh from Avdivka, but we do know there's this ongoing tussle in it, much like Western Zaporizhia and other front lines around Donetsk and, say, Bakhmut. If Russia is going to launch anything, it's going to be a very grinding process. They progress. They've got to come overcome, again, significant Ukrainian defences of landmines, artillery positions and the like. So it's not going to be a mean... It won't be any easy feat for the Russians uh, to make ground, but it's a sign that they're looking to sort of change up tactics after months of defence. Okay, so now to change the latest overnight attack. So in the latest overnight attacks, a Ukrainian military spokesperson said a grain storage facility had been hit in the Odessa region. She said some grain had been damaged, but did not say how much. Russia has intensified its airstrikes on Danube ports in the southern Odessa region in recent weeks, which is essentially attacking Kyiv's main uh, route for food exports out of the country um, with the Black Sea blockade still in place. There is a humanitarian corridor that Ukraine has managed to establish where the, the ships essentially hug the far western coastline of Ukraine until they reach Romania. And Ukraine is getting grain out of that out of that area, but it's difficult. So there are attacks on Pokrovsk. So one person was killed and 12 people were wounded in, a, in an attack on the city of Pokrovsk in the Donetsk region on Friday, according to emergency services. The emergency services in the area said that the two administrative buildings have been damaged as a result of an attack. Three people have been rescued from underneath rubble there. A update from the British Ministry of Defence and its daily intelligence update. So the British Military of Defence has reported that Russia's Air Force long-range aviation aircrafts have not conducted a strike against Ukraine since September the 21st. So last month, so that's a period of 21 days. The MOD said this there was a similar break between March and April last year, likely due to depleted stocks of their AS-23 missiles. It said that Russian LRA is likely, so that's long-range aviation, is likely preserving stocks in anticipation for further heavy strikes against Ukraine over the winter. And as we know... President Zelensky, as he visited NATO this week, warned about it. Western intelligence services have been warning about it, that we do anticipate Moscow is going to once again launch a long-range missile barrage with drones, missiles, whatever it has available to it, to try and target Ukraine's critical infrastructure, essentially heating and electricity systems to try and freeze Ukrainians throughout its, the cold winter ahead. And then just a few more smaller updates. So Russia has claimed to have destroyed a British-built AS-90. That's a armoured self-propelled artillery system. So footage shared by the Russian Ministry of Defence purports to show the AS-90 being hit by a kamikaze drone of some sort, causing a large explosion and a fire. It can be seen burning profusely until the footage ends. So the ministry, that's the Russians, said the vehicle was neutralised by a precise strike by a loitering munition. So we are in no position to verify this information. The Ukrainians haven't spoken on it. But what is interesting about the AS-90, it's an artillery system that we donated and it is no longer in production. So eventually these systems will be worn out. So if it's still in Ukrainian hands, they may be able to cannibalise it and use it for spare parts on other systems that are damaged by wear and tear. So barrel wear is one of the big things we talk about when it comes to artillery systems, how many rounds of artillery rounds, so they one with five, five millimeter munitions, can they fire before they need to be replaced? We don't know the exact figure for AS-90s, well, I don't off the top of my head, but I can imagine that lots of them will be nearing barrel replacement at some stage. 
So it would be good to have some spare parts considering the British no longer manufacture these anymore. Well, thank you very much for that, Joe. Francis, can I come to you? There's lots and lots of different bits and pieces diplomatically and politically speaking. Where would you like to start? Thanks, David. Yes, lots going on. As we speak, the Joint Expeditionary Conference is taking place. That's a British-led defence alliance of several European countries, which Zelensky has just been addressing. A few interesting remarks from him, given the present international context. He stressed the need for geopolitical stability in Europe and the entire Euro-Atlantic and said... If an enemy has significant resources and boundless cynicism, like Russia, Hamas or other terrorists, then free nations need a really full-scale defence. Fast, flexible, not limited by outdated procedures, and one that can be maintained as long as it is needed. Ukraine, being on the road to NATO, is developing a system of security guarantees. And I thank those of you who joined us in this process. Geopolitical stability is the basic element for all other forms of stability. Now, as we've discussed throughout this week, President Zelensky has been keen to place Ukraine as a key Western ally in events unfolding in the Middle East. It has been very interesting seeing the spread of material online pushed hard by pro-Russian accounts, pointing to officials like Ursula von der Leyen last year, saying the attack on civilians by Russian forces in Ukraine was a war crime and the reason the West was defending Ukraine, and are now citing hypocrisy when civilians face Western-backed bombing and energy supplies cut off by the Israelis. Battling that narrative is going to be a key front in the information war over the coming weeks for the Ukrainians and their Western allies. It's a very complicated one, and I think it's too much for us to try and cover extensively today, but no doubt we will over the coming days. But staying with Europe, we had the results of the Slovak election last week, and this weekend we have another election to get our teeth into. Poland heads to the polls on Sunday in a vote which could ramp up tensions with the EU and neighbouring Ukraine. Now, while all the polls put the... Uh, ruling populist law and justice party in first place, they show it's highly unlikely at present to win an overall majority. Its most likely partner would be the hard right confederation party, another party which is sceptical about continued aid to Ukraine, like we've seen on other hard right parties in Europe. Now, Poland, of course, important to emphasise, has been a leading cheerleader for Ukraine in the EU and NATO and has taken in over a million Ukrainian refugees. But there is some evidence of growing fatigue amongst many Poles. The government has also recently fallen out with Ukraine over the grain import ban aimed at protecting Polish farmers. And some are selling, saying that the ruling party has adopted a slightly chillier stance towards Ukraine in a bid for nationalist votes. We will be monitoring this closely, and I imagine it will be a key discussion point next week. Suffice to say, one of Putin's core motivations for freezing the war was the hope that the political tides in Europe would shift in his favour as fatigue set in. And it remains to be seen whether that ambition will play out. But just to insert some breaking news as well on the election front, Serbia's president has just announced he is calling for snap parliamentary elections on December 17th, which will be the third time voters in the country head to the polls in three and a half years. 
That is a very unstable region, as we've talked about recently with Dr. Ivana Stradner. So that will be a very significant election in the European and wider context, something that we will, as I say, return to. In Latvia, there is anger today at what it is calling attempts by Moscow to create chaos at one of its border checkpoints. Indeed, Latvia has said it will close one of its border crossings with Russia next week after accusing Moscow of trying to create chaos there by funneling Ukrainian passport holders through the small rural checkpoint. So for context, on Thursday, Moscow said that people with Ukrainian passports could only enter Russian territory. And bear in mind, there are many people who hold dual nationality, who may be Russian, but have got... It's it's a complicated area. But have said they would only enter Russian territory through Moscow, one of its airports, or Latvia's crossing point in Vuntali. But the remote outpost, which means lonely in Latvian, and no doubt I've butchered its pronunciation, was too small to cope with that traffic. And Latvia's foreign minister has said Russia was trying to create problems on the frontier. So to quote from them, Russia continues its tactics, trying to divide the EU member states that have a border with Russia. Such behaviour is doomed to fail. We will closely coordinate a common position with EU and NATO partners and act accordingly. Now, another interesting snippet from the EU, its foreign policy chief has started holding talks about Ukraine on his three-day visit to China. He said it is in our interest to find common ground to redress the imbalance in our economic and trade relations. He was speaking to students at the capital's Peking University. Otherwise, de-risking may indeed accelerate far more than is good, as the public opinion will increase its pressure on political leaders to disengage more and more from China. This is a long-anticipated trip to Shanghai and Beijing, and it was postponed twice and comes in quite a febrile context because a week ago the EU launched its anti-subsidy investigation into Chinese electric vehicle imports, which rather upset Beijing. Now, the EU has a $426 billion trade deficit with the world's second-largest economy and has become a major sticking point that in the relationship and so this is an attempt to try and smooth things over i would add that china's stance on the middle eastern question which is broadly speaking hardly pro-israeli at the moment will also add to the tensions but that's another complicated topic and one we'll save for another day On the subject of economics, however, as an indicator of quite how profound the change in mentality has been on the energy front, the US Assistant Secretary for Energy Resources has said Russia will never again be viewed as a reliable energy supplier. He was speaking at an online briefing ahead of next week's US-Japan Energy Security Dialogue and has said that the US and its partners in the Group of Seven were committed to denying Russia any energy revenues. It's imposed the first sanctions on owners of tankers carrying Russian oil priced above the G7's price cap of $60 a barrel in an effort to close the loopholes in the mechanism. And just to read the quote in full, it's very clear to me that Russia is never again going to be viewed as a reliable energy supplier. In the case of our G7 partners in particular, we are also committed to work jointly to deny Russia future energy revenues and target in particular investments and projects growing Russia's future energy revenue. Now, as we've discussed in the past, looking long term, the US is seeking to become an energy exporter 
to its Western allies, something that may profoundly change geopolitics in Europe and beyond as countries turn away from Russia and the Middle East for oil and gas even further. Natural resources that have been at the heart of many countries' wealth and power, including disruptive ones whose views do not, of course, align with the West on many issues. And that is being clearly seen, I think, this week. Now, lastly, just an update on grain. You weren't lying, David, when you said a lot was going on. Putin said that Russia will continue to export large quantities of grain next year, despite Western sanctions. Russia is likely to retain the first place in the world in wheat exports. He said our grain exports will also be the same as last year, with not less than 50 to 60 million tonnes. He was speaking at that Commonwealth of Independent States, the organisation of several post-Soviet states that I mentioned yesterday. And he was keen to emphasise that the friends and colleagues there, not all of them are, of course, some of them have been very upset in recent months, but nevertheless, that our friends and colleagues there will have their grain quota fulfilled by us. Now, Roscoe has been complaining that the West is imposing these indirect restrictions on its grain and fertiliser exports. So he's clearly trying to drive a wedge here. Now, he says it's by limiting its access to global payment systems and insurance, and those are being the core hindrances, which is why it withdrew from the grain deal, or so it said. This is all designed, I think, to show defiance on this matter of grain and to say that we are not unduly impacted by the withdrawal from the deal nor from Western sanctions. But as I say, that remains very much an open question and no doubt we will return soon to the ongoing question of the fate of the Russian economy. But those are the main political headlines, David. Thank you very much, Francis. Just a few more updates for us today. And of course, there is an interview coming in the episode later as well. Joe, can I come to you? Just an interesting update about the drones Russia has been using. Joe Barnes. Yeah, so um, some US military officials have displayed what they said were pieces of Iranian drones recovered in Ukraine to UN member states on Thursday. And they said the um, evidence, this is the Pentagon said, the evidence points towards the growing ties between Iran and Russia. So the US mission to the UN said representatives from more than 40 countries attending an event where Defence Intelligence Agency officials, so the DIA, said the debris were part of Iranian Shahid-101 drones, Shahid-131 drones and Shahid-136 drones, all found in Ukraine. They, of course, we know these drones as being the white motorbike-style, sound white motorbike-sounding drones that fly over, uh, loiter above in the sky and then crash into a target, detonating up to sort of 50 kilograms worth of explosives so quite devastating and are relatively cheap to make so u.s ambassador linda thomas greenfield told the event these are not replicas these are the real thing these are weapons of war that iran has transferred to malign actors so she added iranian officials have made no secret of their ambition to expand the sale of these attack drones and now they are in russian hands being used against civilians in europe So Tehran has always denied the accusations that it is supplying Russia with large quantities of unmanned aerial vehicles, these drones, some armed to use in the invasion of Ukraine. We've long spoken about it. We know these are Iranian drones. We know they've popped up in Ukraine and various parts have been taken from around the world to to make these. Russia was said to be establishing a factory to build them themselves, but we don't know how that's really going. I think we should really look into probably a bit closer because, uh, as many people say, Russian 
arms production is grinding on slowly but not sort of at full capacity because of its problem with getting the equipment from outside than the west because of sanctions so yeah there's these drones have popped up and it's just another example of how russia is using its remaining remaining allies in the world say iran and north korea to uh, fuel its war machine thank you joe francis just a few more updates relating to russian opposition figures please Thanks. I spoke yesterday about the trial taking place of one brave activist defending what he sees as his right to criticise the war and the Russian leadership. But there remain worrying signs that the clampdowns or worse continue. Listeners who've been with us since the beginning will remember the Russian state TV journalist who denounced Putin's attack on Ukraine live on air not long after the full-scale invasion. Well, we're hearing today that she may have been poisoned in France. So Marina Svenyakova called emergency services and was hospitalised yesterday after suddenly falling ill as she left her Paris apartment and said she suspected she was poisoned. That's coming from the Paris prosecutor's office. Police uh, are examining her apartment and an investigation is underway, we understand. Now, Ms. Venyakova worked at Russian state television channel One, drew international attention, as I say, last year after appearing in March behind the anchor of an evening news broadcast holding up a sign that said, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda, they're lying to you here. And media watchdog Reporters Without Borders, which helped her case, helped her escape and settle in France, said its team has been at her side since she sought medical attention. But there hasn't been any more word yet as to the degree of severity of this. She was charged with disparaging the Russian military and fined 30,000 rubles, which is about $270. She later staged a protest near the Kremlin in July last year, was detained and placed under house arrest before escaping to France with her daughter. Earlier this month, significantly, a Moscow court sentenced her to eight and a half years in prison in absentia for spreading false information about the Russian army. The timing there might well be significant, I think, and not least given the international context and the fact that people are at the moment looking at the events unfolding in the Middle East, it would be a good time to try and silence dissent. But in other news on this theme, as another example potentially of that, Russian investigators detained a lawyer who has worked for jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and searched the homes of two others. That's coming from allies of Navalny earlier today. They said the three lawyers were being investigated on suspicion of belonging to an extremist group and accused authorities of opening the case against them in order to further isolate the imprisoned Navalny. Now, a little bit more context on this, just to familiarise listeners with the help of his lawyers. Navalny has maintained a very active presence on social media and lodged frequent complaints against his treatment in the penal colony in the Vladimir region, east of Moscow, where he's currently being held. He was due to be moved soon to a different special regime colony after being convicted in August of a range of new charges relating to extremist their term activity and sentenced to an additional 19 years on top of the 11 and a half years he was already serving. He, of course, accuses 
All of these accusations are being politically motivated and designed to silence his criticism of Putin. He's not an uncontroversial figure, as we've talked about in the past amongst many Ukrainians, but nevertheless, he is for many one of the leading opposition figures, if not the leading opposition figure in Russia, and one who has been silenced as a consequence of that. And all of these stories I've just touched on, David, are further evidence of what is now numerically the largest crushing of dissent in Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union, which speaks to just quite how seriously the Kremlin takes the threat posed by dissenters. And that in its own way is evidence of quite how fragile the Kremlin feels as a consequence of the war in Ukraine. It puts out this projection of strength. But if it really was this strong, it would not be doing this. So just an important add, a fact to add, I think, to our calculations when thinking about these issues. But say very concerning developments on the issue of Russian dissidents. Well, thank you very much, Francis and Joe. Let's move then to our final thoughts. Uh, Joe Barnes, would you like to go first? So I think my final thought, I won't go too deeply into it, but because I think it follows on more from Francis's ideas that he wants to speak about. But I, I just find it interesting how we now live in a modern world, modern warfare, and the Ukrainians utilised this idea very well to, to galvanise support. And I think the, uh, the Israelis are now following suit with that. So... Back in the early days of the war, I'd often speak to government officials, whether they be British, German, whoever, from about the war and about their contacts, mainly with people in Zelensky's office, other national advisers uh, on security and such and such. And the Ukrainians would often send out videos and show shocking footage of what it reported to be war crimes. Um, so again, it was it circulated lots of grim footage and from the butcher massacres. Um, with the point of shocking the public and politicians into galvanising their support for Ukraine. And what we've seen with Israel yesterday publishing a picture of a uh, the body of a bloodied baby that we've run, not on our front page, but in the, in the, the third page, is that, again, it's that tactic of using the most visceral of images to to shock and horrify people into ensuring their support in the long run. Thank you very much, Joe. Francis Stanley. Thanks. Yes. Well, as Joe's just been saying, the official Twitter account of the Israeli government posted this highly distressing image that appears to show a baby murdered by Hamas. The Telegraph gave readers the choice of whether they wish to view that image in our newspaper, publishing it inside our pages and online for those who chose to see the horrors perpetrated by that attack at the weekend. It's a haunting image and one that has unsurprisingly stoked a visceral reaction amongst many. Some say such images should never be shown, but as we've discussed in the past, there is another view, which is that by choosing to censor such images, we actually sanitise the horrors of war and conflict. And it's had me asking myself again, David, whether if if many around the world had seen some of the images the Ukrainians have been subjected to in their communities as a consequence of this war, whether it would still be being fought today or whether it would have triggered such a wave of revulsion that they would have been calling for governments to do more. I don't know the answer to that, nor where that line should be drawn out of respect for families and victims. But it is a serious subject that warrants discussion, I think. 
And I bang on about that phrase, the medium is the message. But it feels especially true here. We see war crimes on and in the same mediums. We read, watch or listen to other news, to entertainment, liaising with our friends. Do we in some ways as a result of that become numb to shock as a result? I think Susan Sontag wrote an essay about that, so I'll need to reread it and report back. But it's an open question which feels especially relevant to me on days like this. And I welcome listeners' thoughts on that question. Thank you very much, Joe and Francis. This week, over Labour Conference, I sat down with Welsh Labour politician Mick Antonich. Mick is a member of the Senate, that's the Welsh Parliament, and has spent much of the last year and a half advocating for Ukraine politically, but also personally driving aid convoys out to the east of the country. We spoke about his family history, the links between Wales and Ukraine, and trade union support. Here's our conversation. Could you tell us a little bit more about your family's story, your second-generation Ukrainian? Tell us about your parents and your grandparents. Okay, well, my grandparents I never knew because it was only really in 1989 when the Soviet Union was beginning to collapse I was able to go back to Ukraine. In fact, I went there to actually take supplies and materials in as part of a sort of, I suppose, a Ukrainian socialist organisation. As new political parties were beginning to form in the Soviet Union, we were taking over to what was becoming the new Social Democratic Party being formed. So just taking over literature, money, things that would enable them to publish and so on. And I just took the opportunity then. I wanted to establish contact with my dad's family. We had no contact whatsoever. My dad was a political refugee after the Second World War was taken to a camp, he was a camp in France and then was liberated there, ended up in a displaced person camp in Scotland. None of the Ukrainians wanted to go back to the regime under Stalin. There'd been mass deportations, mass murders and we know what happened to Katyn and and things like that. So he was in a displaced persons camp in Scotland and then eventually moved down to Reading. He was carpenter so a lot of building work going on so that was the sort of background there. But when I got to Ukraine of course 89 for the first time, people were beginning to be able to talk about what happened. And I had my one cousin who died last year. His dad was killed, or my uncle was killed, in the Ukrainian division of the Red Army when it was marching, crossing the River Oda. So he remembers what happened. He was born in, I think, 42. So he remembered he was about six years old in 1948. He said the NKVD surrounded the entire village basically said you're all bandits because there was still a war going on in Ukraine and he said they basically deported the entire village to Siberia left him because his dad had served in the Red Army but they regarded all the Ukrainian villages as non-supporters of Stalin basically family came back I never met them but I I did in 89 I met some of my aunts and cousins and I basically kept those contacts going ever since what did they tell you about the current full-scale invasion? What are you hearing from them in 2023? Well, I was in Kyiv till two days before the invasion, and I'd been over to see family. Right at the beginning, no one was really quite sure what would happen because the invasion was coming from three or four different directions. So that part of my family, they were in Western Ukraine. Some of them came over, stayed with me, but then after two months went back after the Russian forces were forced back and forced back away from Kyiv. They'd gone back to Ukraine. What they're saying is, well, it is very difficult on the front line there. They're desperately in need of more equipment. 
There is a lot of heavy equipment going in, but they desperately need medical. We're being asked for things like cells, night vision, drones, ration packs and things like that. So those are the sorts of things that we're taking over them. Right at the beginning, I had my cousin who is 74, 74, 75, and his son, who I know very well, who is my nephew, who is coming up to his 50s, and then his son below that. So there's three generations there. And I said, well, what are you going to do? He said, well, he said, we're going to stay here and we will fight to the end. We've got nowhere else to go. And that's why I hear most from people, got nowhere else to go. Ukraine is, it is winning the war, but it is slow grinding. It hasn't won the war. And it is slow grinding and the death toll is, is, is really, really hard. Right at the beginning, I was being asked for NATO standard uh, body armour. So we took a lot of that over in helmets, had a lot of money raised. Uh, Money was quite easy to raise then. It's getting harder year by year now. And my one niece's uh, husband's helicopter pilot, he got shot down in the helicopter in the battle over uh, Snake Island, over the Black Sea, within the first couple of months. And there are many, many more like that. The graveyards are filling up. You notice them now because every one of them has the Ukrainian flag. But what I do find is there is absolutely no concept of we're not going to win. People say, we say, well, we're going to do this, Pishla Peramohe, after victory. And I think people are adamant that however long it takes, that will be it. People are tired. I think people hate the war. People are seeing death. But that having said, there's a sort of strange normality that's developing. I, was, I was went specifically after Pavlograd, I went specifically again just to spend a week with family and one of my cousins who's serving in, he comes from really just over the border near Donetsk, a mining town called Solidova and he ended up there because after Stalin's death when they were allowed to come back from Siberia you had to go where you were told to, told to work so he's serving there. It was nice to meet with him, for him to get leave to meet with him. He gave me his army name badge which I think is symbolic that if something happens, you've got this in memory of me, etc., uh, and that I served. And so it is, it is grim. There are a lot of broken hearts, a lot of angry people, a lot of civilians have been killed. I think people are absolutely angry at the attacks on the hospitals, the attacks on the schools and on civilians. And I think that just makes them more determined. What's the reaction when people find out that you're a British parliamentarian? Is that something you mention much? I'm, I'm curious as to how that's sort of yeah. that's seen. The stuff we're taking over, what I always say to them is this. This is on behalf, well, one is on behalf of the, the trade unions in Wales. It's on behalf of all the political parties within Wales because we raise the funds on behalf of the Welsh Parliament. So it is a sort of contribution of members of the Welsh Parliament across all political parties to support Ukraine. And we will be commemorating in the Welsh Parliament this 25th of November is the 90th anniversary of the Holodomor, the famine where three, four, five million Ukrainians were starved to death in uh, central and eastern Ukraine. And we'll be marking that with the Ukrainian uh, families that are in Wales. And I think what people do say is they say that Britain has been the strongest country to support the first ones to come out. Those javelins were absolutely fundamental in that first week and started that triggering. So they see Britain as a country that has been consistently supplying them, but they also now see other countries as well. 
what they are concerned is that they're not forgotten, that people don't actually forget and recognise that the war is still ongoing. And what they say is, look, you know, there may be an economic cost to you, but we're paying for it in our blood, in, with our lives. Uh, and I think what they also say, which is very true as well, if we didn't win, the cost to you is going to be that much greater uh, in terms of what you're going to have to do in terms of defence. We know the Baltic countries are very concerned, Poland is very concerned, uh, Moldova, etc. The whole area is potential uh, at risk, which is why they are in so many ways supporting Ukraine at the moment and supporting the, the 10 million or so Ukrainians who've had to flee the country. Can I ask about your experiences with the left and within Labour about yeah. persuading people to support Ukraine? Have you found any difficulty doing that? I mean, it's Corbyn only left in 2019. He was accused of being soft on Russia. Like, has that been a problem within the party? What have you seen? It hasn't been a problem within the Labour Party. It has taken a while for the Labour Party to come out with a very, very clear position. And there is a position now that Labour is absolutely a, a one of continuity in terms of complete support continuity of the the weapons and the support that's needed. I would argue there's actually quite a lot more that needs to be done. Former vehicles that instead of being sold once they're passed there, used by data, things that could go to Ukraine. There's a need to keep that going and I think Britain in many ways has been very solid so I see that being something of complete continuity. Of course there are those elements. Uh, uh, the Morning Star which seems to have a sort of Stalinist line in terms of Putin. The Stop the War which is now really a small factional group which says it's against the invasion but uh, doesn't call for troops to leave Ukraine, doesn't call for solidarity with Ukraine, opposes arms to Ukraine and those are all nonsense positions because the reality is is saying what Ukraine should do is capitulate and if Ukraine were to capitulate the language, the culture, the identity, the national identity of Ukraine will be expunged and we know that because that's what Putin and others have actually said. What I think was really important was that when we were over in Kiev, I went over with the General Secretary of ASLEV, General Secretary of the National Union of Mine Workers, and we actually met with trade unions, we met with human rights groups. We've been having these exchanges for a long time now, but also since the invasion, really the development of sort of solidarity with them and with the trade unions. So we were over in Pavlograd, we drove 2,300 miles to Pavlograd into Donbass this uh, July to deliver vehicles and supplies, myself and another Senate member and members of the National Mine Workers. And we took those over. They came, took them straight to Bakhmut, but we're just continually supplying. Pavlograd is about 20,000 miners, 20,000 working in the, in the eight or nine collieries they have there. They're now down to 15,000, 5,000 or so fighting on the front line. They've lost 260 of them. Uh, they've had enormous missile strikes on the area of Pavlograd and so on. They are all predominantly first language Russian speakers. And they're the ones who actually totally dispel this mythology that somehow this is about protecting Russian speakers and ethnic Russians because by Christ are they patriotic and they do not want to be controlled by Russia. They do not regard themselves as Russians and they fiercely do not want to become part of Russia. But it just dispels this total nonsense that is put out by those who say, oh, well, maybe this is some ethnic war, civil war, whatever. What I was very, very pleased with was that the TUC conference, for the first time now this year, had a resolution at it, which was one of very clear support for Ukraine, condemnation of Russia, support for material aid to Ukraine, and calling for support for the trade unions to actually go out and start meeting with Ukrainian trade unions 
and I think that is groundbreaking because in the past it has been difficult. There's been a reluctance to get involved in the controversy because there are those who said, well, this is a sort of Russian-Ukrainian type issue. The reality is it's about defending democracy in Ukraine and it's about defending trade union rights in Ukraine. So that is a major breakthrough. And I know now that trade unions have not only been inviting Ukrainian trade unions over, but are now planning delegations to go to Ukraine. That is going to be fundamentally important for the future because at some stage in the future when the war is over, when reconstruction starts taking place, the importance of having European standards, social rights and so on is going to be really important in what will be having to, I suppose, recreate a new Ukrainian democratic structure. We were in a fringe event about an hour ago after Keir Starmer's leader of the Labour Party's speech and Alexei Gontrelenko, People's Deputy of Ukraine, serves in the RADA, I think he's MP for Odessa, opposition MP from the European Solidarity Party. He raised concerns that Ukraine was only mentioned once in Keir Starmer's speech. I checked the record, that's not quite true, he mentioned it twice. Mm-hmm. Neither were particularly substantive points. I just wonder what your thoughts on that are, and I mean, how would, how would you assuage Mr Gontrenko's worries? Well, I think you assuage them by actually the policy you have and what the a Labour government says it's going to do to support Ukraine. I've spoken to David Lammy, conversations I've had with him and the things that he has said have been absolutely on a par with the continuity of support and I think that the, that complete continuity is absolutely fundamental to reassuring Ukraine what is important are the deeds rather than the words. Listen, those discussions taking place, the fact that we'll be me having this reception, this international reception later, John Healy, the, who will probably be the next Defence Minister in Labour government, uh, David Lammy will be here, other MPs will be here. I'm in contact with uh, a lot of Labour MPs. There is complete, absolute solidarity and unity. And I think the other thing is, there are those who say, well, we want humanitarian aid, food, medical and so on, and that's all good, that's fine. But there is no shame whatsoever now in saying what we are doing is providing things over to the military battalions to enable them, who are doing the fighting, who are dying, who are getting wounded, to actually win the war. This is a war for democracy in Europe. It is the front line of democracy. And I think two things are going to emerge in the future. One is we desperately need some legislative steps to not only the seizure of Russian assets, but for those Russian assets to be transferred, to be used for reparations and the reconstruction of Ukraine. The hundreds of billions around the world, I know governments are looking at it. I've raised it in my position as Council General with counterparts at the UK government level, so I know work is going on, but that's something that a new Labour government can really take the initiative on. And the other one is to continue the support for the work of the International Criminal Court but also support the development of a Nuremberg-style, a new tribunal. I think those are things that are certainly there for the long term, but the work on that has to start now, and it has to happen, because you cannot allow what is happening to not be accountable at international law. What was it like growing up? As a, I don't, how would you describe yourself? Ukrainian well, British? Well, British I, Ukrainian? I, I sometimes get asked almost trick questions when I'm saying in Wales, they say, well, do you regard yourself as British? As I say, I regard myself as Ukrainian Welsh. And that normally floors them. But basically, the community I was brought up was very Ukrainian, they were refugees, predominantly men, very different to the Ukrainians coming over now, who are mainly women and children. And that, that is, I think, very, very noticeable and very, very significant. 
but everything I had as a kid Saturday when my friends were going to soccer I was having to go to Ukrainian school Ukrainian music Ukrainian dance and so on and brought up Ukrainian speaking but the one thing I always do remember is people are saying oh yes Ukraine what part of Russia was that and you say no no it's not part of Russia and they go oh yes it is it's part of etc people didn't know very much about Ukraine they do now and sadly probably for all the wrong reasons since uh, Chernobyl and of course what has happened more 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 recently of course, we look a bit the same when I go to Wales. When you're in Wales and you tell people abroad that you're from Wales and they say, well, what part of England is that? <laughs> but it's a, yeah. a similar sort of thing, a similarity. And, of course, Wales has this incredible connection with Ukraine. Not only Gareth Jones, the journalist, who we've just had a big bronze plaque unveiled in the National Library in Kiev to Gareth Jones, who exposed the Holodomor, and really on the ethics of journalism and so on. So that's someone that's being very much celebrated. And the other one, of course, is Yuzovka, as uh, they say, the the city that was established by John Hughes and Welsh miners and engineers uh, who travelled over to uh, establish coal mines and steel industry, or the iron industry, in the city of Donetsk, which was first named Yuzovka, Yuzovka, Hughesovka, after John Hughes. Then it became Stalino, and then eventually it became Donetsk. So there was that historic link between Wales and uh, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.